Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Okay, welcome back to My Millennial Investor. Today's a fun show, or I think it's going to be a fun show. It's, it was at least fun for me to plan this show because, I don't know, a little bit ago, Glenn put out on the My Millennial Money Facebook page asking you if you have any questions for me. So this episode is brought to you by you, the local listeners of My Millennial Investor. So I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a good time. Uh, I don't know, pick one, two, three, four, five, six seven or eight questions from you guys. I hand selected the ones that I could actually answer. <laughs> if you wrote some down and they were maybe a little bit super tax Australia oriented, I may have ignored those and stuck with the, kind of the bread and butter, the ones that I can answer, the investment general questions. And there were a lot of good questions. So thanks for writing in. And if this works, hey, maybe we'll do it again sometime. So let's do it. You're listening to My Millennial Investor, the show where I search the financial world for the most up-to-date investment ideas, market trends, and income streams, so you don't have to. I'm your host, Nick Bradley. Let's get into it. Okay, question number one. If you listen to the Tuesday show, My Millennial Money, I think by this time the episode would have, would have already aired where Glenn uses the AI-generated voice of me asking those questions. I tried to do a bit where I just impersonated Glenn and I didn't use AI to read the questions and my Australian accent was so offensive that I had to re-record this episode. <laughs> okay, maybe not, but it, it was not good. Let's just say that it fell apart very quickly. So I'm just going to read it in my normal, boring, Alaska-born, Great Lakes-living, United States accent. Question from Emily. If your investment tactics change, is it worth selling the old investments that don't fit the new plan or just leave them running in the background? Our example, she says, is that we are buying ETFs quarterly with the intention of keeping them for at least 20 years. Initially, we bought VDGR, then decided to go with a core three ETF plan, very good idea, and are buying VAS, VGS, and VGE. It's only 2K of VDGR that we have left in there, and it's all with the same broker. So those are our stats. Specifically to your situation, Emily, since it is a well-diversified growth ETF, that being VDGR. I personally wouldn't be in a big hurry to go and sell and move on, especially if it's in a taxable account, like when you've owned some stocks or some ETFs and they've appreciated. Let's hope that it's appreciated. You don't necessarily want to be turning over your stocks because every time you buy and sell, you're encouraging another opportunity for the tax man to put his hand or her hand in your pocket and take that tax money. So to avoid the tax and capital gains tax, And since VDGR is a well-diversified ETF, 
depending on your time horizon, I would just say, hey, leave it. Let it go. Even if it's got a little bit of overlap, it's not like the end of the world. It's $2,000. Seems good. Answering more generally, I would ask, why have your tactics changed? So like you went from like the one VDGR ETF, and you now have this three fund thing going on, VAS, VGS, and VGE. I can see your Vanguard lover. So in regards to like your tactics changing, I would look internally and say, with my tactics change, is this still a fit if it's like in a non-taxable account so it doesn't matter if you sell it and move on? Or you know, maybe do you like VDGR like as a little side project and see where it's going to go? Who knows? I would specifically look in general. Let's, let's take a step aside from Emily's question. And when your investment tactics change, as they do, you need to generally ask, why have they changed? And like, did you give up on a specific industry? Maybe you've been investing in China and you're like a little nervous about the government intervening as much as they have. So maybe your uh, investment change is country specific, politics driven. Maybe you're rotating sectors and you're trying to invest with the business cycle. I do a bit of that myself. And then finally, are you just holding dead money? I know that Emily's probably isn't dead money because it was a well-diversified growth ETF. But if you're holding dead money, like if I pull up my (laughs) brokerage account, I have literally, I have a section in my brokerage account called dead. And dead means I know no matter what happens, this is probably not coming back. Some small investments that I took a flyer on, most of them are tech heavy or a pharmaceutical stock. And they're down, it says 99.9%, but it's probably down even more than that. And when you look up the stats of what it takes for a bad investment to come back after losing, it is quite a large chunk of change. So the art of selling a losing position. If your stock is losing value and you want to sell, but you can't decide if you're in favor or maybe like am I going to have further losses, you know, what's going to happen? You need a huge amount of money to come back. So a 50% drop in your position. Let's say you bought tech GGG or whatever, you know, some fake tech company, and that stock drops 50%. You need 100% return now at that lower position to get you back to the 50%. So if you bought it at $100 and it dropped to $50, if it goes up 50% from 50, well, guess what? That's only 75 you need it to go up 100% from 50 to get back to your break-even percent. So Emily, if you are looking at an investments tactic change because you've got some dead money and you're like, well, what should I do? Like, Don't throw good money at a bad investment. If you have a core belief in this particular company and you invested in it and you think it still has like a shot at coming back, you believe in the investment team and like their strategy, then possibly you could put some money in But if you just made bad decisions like I've made in the past, and there's probably no chance of this coming back, it's down 40, 50, 60%, you need astronomical gains for that to come back. I would just cut it loose, take the money that you have left in that investment, and put it into your new strategy. All right, question two from Helena. It's one of my favorite cities in Montana. I doubt you're named after that, but let's move on. Helena says, what to consider when adjusting your core slash satellite investment strategy as we age? And you'd think a show that's named after millennials, it sounds so young and so vibrant and so robust. And then Helena tosses us this question about as we age, like we're this generation of decrepits. And as I sit here with a swollen elbow, icing it, uh, Helena, you're right. We do need to start thinking about what do we do as things age? I will say that my core strategy will always be based, as long as I'm making wise decisions, they'll be based on low cost 
passive ETFs, things like the total market fund from Vanguard VTI or a fund based around the S&P 500 or a fund based around the NASDAQ 100. Low-cost, passive index funds are going to be my core. Right now, I do have some single stocks in oil, specifically as my satellite investments. And as I age, which I am doing at a rapid pace, my wife tells me, I plan on rotating from more single stock purchases like these oil stocks into dividend ETFs. Because as I age, I'm beginning to think, how can I take this money out? I've been building it up over the last 20 years. Now, how will I be able to live on it? And I think a dividend ETF, besides some of the other core like S&P 500 and NASDAQ ETFs that I have, will help increase my cash flow position in retirement. So that is what I am looking at when I am adjusting my core satellite investment strategy as IH. Question number three. Amy asks, I've been investing over two platforms in essentially the same things, and I've decided to drop one. And I need to sell because of ongoing fees. I've taken the money out just to be done with it. But is it better to just invest it all on the other platform at once, once I bring it back to the market, or drip feed over the coming weeks? It is less than $10,000 and will be going back into index funds. So for most investors, I would suggest have them lean into, again, you're always making your own decisions, but breaking up to $10,000, maybe over like four payments. So over four month time, you put you know, $2,500 in and you dollar cost that back into the market. If you like watching the market and you keep cash in your brokerage account, it's like ready to deploy you could wait for your investments to fall back to maybe the 200-day moving average. 200-day moving average is an average that allows you to look at kind of what direction the market's going. Is your investment currently below the 200 or above the 200? If it's below, now is a good time to kerplunk some money into those investments, maybe more than just a standard dollar cost average. But if you want to be more hands-on and you want to have a fun little experiment, maybe you could buy one share a day and track that until your $10,000 fully invested. That's another option. And if you want to be even more hands-on and your broker offers you the availability to do options, you could sell cash-secured puts to get yourself back into the market. Remember, for a cash-secured put, you need enough money to purchase 100 shares of any ETF or stock. So if you, you know, say your ETF is $10 per share, you could sell some cash-secured puts for a month or two months out maybe. Harness some money. You could even do this weekly. I do these weekly. Make some money on the selling of the contract. And then if you get placed, well, you're purchasing at lower price in the future than it is today. So you're hopefully making out as well. So three options. It is less than $10,000, not to be little. $10,000 is a lot. I definitely don't want to put $10,000 in the market and watch it go down all in one option. But, you know, you could break it up over four payments. You can keep it in cash and look at the 200-day moving average. You can have some fun and throw it in one by one each day and see what that happens. Or you could get even more complex and try to do cash secured puts. Okay, Daniel says, DCA versus lump sum. Daniel says, I've seen plenty of commentary lately that says long term. It isn't simply enough time to make a difference, especially lump sum versus DCA. So do you have an opinion on DCA versus lump sum? Well, as I just stated in that last particular question, uh, this would depend on how hands-on you want to be. Again, buying at the 200-day moving average has proven to be a very good long-term buying time frame. However, if you do that, you do run the risk of kind of being out of the market for long periods of time. If you waited for the 200-day from 2021 to 2022, you would have been waiting. Like I think you would have only had a couple opportunities that whole year to make an investment in the 200-day moving average. This year, you would have a lot more opportunities, most likely, when you're looking at like S&P 500, for instance. 
So if you aren't watching the markets that often, or you don't want to wait long periods of time, you just want to deploy the capital, I would just start dollar cost averaging. You know, you think about the forgotten decade I've talked about before from the year, what, 2008 to 2018? Tough decade. And had you dollar cost average, you would have beaten lump sum investing. You could also do hybrid. You could start dollar cost averaging. You know, say you want to do it on a weekly or monthly schedule. And then if things fall down and hit the 200-day moving average, you could deploy more capital, maybe skip your last one or two dollar cost averaging strategy on your schedule. You know, that would be a good option. In a study by Morningstar, September 2020, it was titled When Dollar Cost Averaging Can Help. The conclusion was that basically DCA investors beat lump sum investors 27.8% of the time for a 10-month period. However, if you look at a 10-year period, dollar cost averaging only beat the lump sum person by 10%. So, looks like lump sum in regards to longer-term investing beats out dollar cost averaging because the time is your friend as long as you're in early. Time works against you the more you're on the sideline. Time works with you. Get your money in, deploy your capital, and watch it go. So, kind of the mentality. Do you want to be more hands-on, or do you want your your money working as fast as you can for you? Come hell or high water, you can just lump some of that money in, and if it's for more than 10 years, time is on your side. Thanks for that question, Dana. We're going to take a quick break, and we've got a few more questions to answer. We'll be right back. 
accusation or generalization, but like you can buy a house in the state that I'm in, in a more depressed area for forty, fifty thousand dollars United States dollars, and then you can get rent on that house after maybe a little bit of paint and some fixing up of like twelve hundred dollars a month. Now, in 10 years, that house might not be even worth what you paid for. It, you may have gone down $10,000 in appreciation, but you would still be collecting a pretty heavy rent. So for not that much capital, you can get a good bang on your buck on a monthly basis, where it seems like $3,000 a month on a $2 million mortgage isn't that great. But in Australia, that $2 million house might be $3 million in 10 years. So it's a different mind frame of investing. I've invested in some house hacks where I bought a house and I lived in the house for a few years. I fixed it up and I moved and I took that capital appreciation. I bought something else. I've bought two homes that I purchased specifically for rentals. Again, they were cheap. One of them just last year was kind of becoming a headache. Uh, it was in a bad position, specifically like geographical location on a hill. And the lawn was always getting, or the garden, I guess you'd say, uh, was always getting mudded out. And it was, tenants were slipping and it was like thousands of dollars to fix. And I was like, you know what? I'm out. And I've taken those profits the proceeds of the rent. The rent was good. I was making good money on a monthly basis. But the headaches that I was inquiring began to outpace the rent that I was getting. And I said, you know what? I'm going to take this money. I'm going to put it in the stock market. I'm going to sell covered calls. And I haven't made as much money on a monthly basis. The house is probably appreciated in the last year. So I kind of blew that one too. But I have peace of mind. Every time it rains, I do not have to worry about doing anything at the house. So if you're looking into real estate, I think real estate is a great investment. A wise man once said, buy real estate. They don't make it anymore. So here's some questions you should ask yourself if you're looking at doing real estate versus passive index funds. Do you live on site or nearby? If not, you may want to consider hiring a local property manager. But when you do, you got to think that cuts in your profits. Are you naturally handy? Rental properties require quite frequent hands-on maintenance. Even things you don't really think about. You have to put money aside each and every month. Are you familiar with state and local landlord-tenant laws? Will your neighborhood allow it? Are there different bylaws that are stopping you from doing that? Do you negotiate well? If you get a bad deal and a bad purchase price, you may not ever recoup your investment. You may have headaches and a flat investment over a decade. Are you good at resolving conflicts? Because as a landlord, you will have conflicts. If you're passive and you don't, you try to avoid conflicts, the tenant will probably wreck your house and you will lose money. Do you mind being interrupted on nights and weekends? That's like everyone's worst nightmare. It didn't happen a lot to me, even at that one particular house, and I still do have one rental. But yeah, I mean, a couple times a year, I was going over there from changing filters to doing landscaping to other things. And if your nights and weekends are holy and they're sacred to you and you can't afford the numbers to work out a local property manager, you know, Definitely got to think about that. But if you can afford a manager, if you're good at conflict, if you're handy, you know, give it a shot. I think it's been a good investment for me. And I think there's room in the world to invest in stocks and bonds and ETFs. And there's room in the world to invest in real estate if you can make it happen. The one thing I always think about after paying your mortgage, your insurance, your property manager, long-term savings, short-term maintenance and repairs, after all of those things, are you still going to be able to cash flow at least $300 a month? If you can't, I would walk away from a deal. If you can, then it might be worth it to you. All right, I had a few more questions lined up, but I'm just jammering and jammering. So I'm going to choose one more here from this list. 
and we will call it a day. Seems like we will have to do another one of these episodes because I wasn't even able to answer all the questions you posted this time. Rochelle says, a few people have said the Vanguard has a complete profile, such as VGHG, but then also a few other funds like that I own, like IVV. Is there a double up here? Would you recommend owning both of these funds? And in looking things up, I didn't see any VGHG with Vanguard, so I'm assuming that Rochelle means VDHG. And if that is the case, then IVV gives people access to the U.S. market only, U.S. and nothing else. So therefore, VDHG gives you exposure to Australia, U.S. stocks, and developed countries, as well as emerging markets and a little bit of bonds. So you are safe to assume there would be maybe a small double up, but not enough to give you a worry. So I would look at those two particular investments and say, that sounds like something you can get into. You could hold VDHG as well as IVV and not have too much overlap. Rochelle gets a bonus question. She also asked, can you go over, can you describe how you rebalance your portfolio? Thanks. Listen, I think stock positioning and your investment portfolio and rebalancing, yes, there is, there's some old adage to it. It says that in reinvesting your portfolio, especially after something has increased in value, conventional wisdom recommends rebalancing your portfolio to match your target asset allocation. So if you've got, Specifically, you want to have your overall fund, your pie, all of your investments match these certain percentages that you wrote out at the beginning of your investing journey. But then one of those investments kind of gets too big and it's outgrowing the portfolio. The common wisdom says sell some of that particular investment and then rebalance your portfolio. But conventional wisdom isn't always right. There are good arguments for and against rebalancing your investment portfolio. Honestly, I kind of think the whole thing maybe is blown out of proportion because sometimes when you think about back in the day when conventional wisdom was around, it's how you purchase a stock is you called up a broker on the phone or you set a meeting with him and you said, hey, I've got Apple stock and I want to buy Amazon stock. And he would charge you a commission for those two purchases and the sale or the selling of the one asset. So he's making like three commissions on that one phone call. So if Apple goes gangbusters, the conventional wisdom says, hey, call the client, tell them to sell their Apple position and buy, maybe spread that out over four or five other positions, therefore getting four or five or six commissions. I'm not saying it's truly sleazy, but I'm just saying there certainly could have been some of the whole rebalancing aspect based heavily on someone else making money every time you bought or sold a stock. Sometimes your best performers will be your best performers because they're your best companies. It's not just like maybe some random event that happened. Maybe you did your due diligence and your research and you bought a good company. That company is still good. So why would you sell a good company just because there's this metric out there that says you should? In 2006, Warren Buffett bought $1 billion of Apple stock. And guess what? That investment has grown to a huge portion of his portfolio at Berkshire Hathaway. His $1 billion has grown to $151 billion. I was going to say $1.5 billion, but it's not $151 billion. And guess what? He just bought some more. Warren's not rebalancing. He is overweighting even more because he believes in Tim Cook and what Apple is doing. So rebalancing your portfolio, if it makes sense, think about it. But don't punish a good stock because it's overperforming some of your other stocks. Sometimes you just got to let a good stock go. And riding that good stock, you may be able to ride that puppy all the way to retirement. You've been listening to My Millennial Investor. 
the show where I search the financial world for the most up-to-date investment ideas, market trends, and income streams, so you don't have to. I'm your host, Nick Bradley, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is produced and published by Oregon Trail Investor in the USA. All information is for entertainment purposes only. The brand My Millennial Investor is used under license.